uh, the other people that, that put this on. I know it's a lot of work to put a convention on like this, and uh, I appreciate that you allowed me to participate in it. I'm Dan, and I'm an alcoholic. And uh, this, this is the first time I've been in Memphis, and uh, Stephen uh, took us down to uh, down to the near Beale Street and to had lunch down there uh, at barbecue. And uh, <laughs> everybody kept saying, "You, you got to go to Graceland and go to barbecue." <laughs> and uh, we actually did drive by Graceland. Uh, I was driving by was enough for me. Uh, we got out, walked around, took a couple pictures, and uh, like on the street with the everything in the background, and then we took off. <laughs> that was that was good. Um, so, uh, all right. Again, I as I said, I'm Dan, and I'm an alcoholic, and uh, and uh, I thought that 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 label for me in the beginning was like that kind of meant the end of my life. You know, I, I came to Alcoholics Anonymous um, after, uh, after a long, a long period of, of trying to, of being baffled about what happened to my life. And, and I was just completely, uh, uh, you know, I didn't know how I got here. I didn't know how my life had turned into what it had turned into. It all seemed to start off so innocently. You know, I was 15, and uh, my mother started dating this guy that had the, this gas station, and I started hanging around the gas station, and there was about 50 people that hung around this gas station at any, you know, not all at once, but they kind of like wandered in and wandered out. And this was in the late 60s. And in the late 60s, there was hippies, and the Vietnam War was going on, and all this stuff, and and uh, there was, and everything went through this gas station because there was just so many guys that rolled through it. Everybody rolled in with something: LSD, pot, quaaludes, whatever. And uh, you know, and and, and it was uh, a. I had a spiritual awakening as a result of, uh, of this new way of life. <laughs> and I, it, it changed me because I went from Dan riding his bicycle up and down the beach and out of uh, the beach side of Los Angeles, actually in Venice, rode my bicycle up and down the beach, and then I threw the bicycle away, got a little motorcycle, and everything was different. Life was just wonderful, right? And... Uh, you know, alcohol did things for me that I that I didn't even know I was missing out on. <laughs> and uh, you know, it just started with beer, and they smoked a lot of pot at this gas station, and they dropped a lot of acid, and and people rolled in with all kinds of pills, and and uh, and uh, I don't even think it was really, you know. When I was doing the LSD, I didn't really know that I was doing the LSD because what what I was being told was is that it was mescaline, and it just sounded so much more natural that it would be okay, right? Uh, although I realize now, looking back, that that uh, mescaline probably didn't have to come in chocolate powder, right? Okay? <laughs> 
So I never really knew how much of that I was taking because we just empty the powder into Coca-Colas and, uh, and drink it. And, you know, and, and there was just a lot of drugs through the teenage years, to my teenage years. And, uh, you know, as soon as I started hanging around that gas station and doing drugs and drinking, uh, I decided that uh, school was, act- was getting in the way of the life that I, my new life, and uh, decided at 15, 16 years old, what could they possibly teach me more than what I already know, right? <laughs> so I stopped going. Although I did show up at photography class that was the first class in the morning, then I'd leave. But, uh, in, you know, life, life was good. Right? I was living exactly the way I wanted to live, doing what I wanted to do, you know, drinking and, and, and uh, started off with, with beer, but, uh, and I don't know why it started off like this, but we were all we all would go to the liquor store. We'd hang out outside, right? Because we were we couldn't buy it. Wait for someone to come up that would buy it for us. And uh, typically, what I would get was a quart in a can. For some reason, that was what everybody was doing—a quart in a can of Colt 45. And that went on for about six months, and uh, smoking a lot of pot. And uh, and one day. My stepbrother, my mother ended up marrying this guy that owned the gas station, and uh, so this, this guy that was managing it became my stepbrother. One day he walked up to me and he said, Dan, you're starting sentences and you're not finishing them. Right? <clears throat> he, says, he says, something's wrong. And I said, yeah, it's, it's got to be that pot. So I stopped pot. I just made a decision that it was affecting my life in a negative way, so I'm not going to smoke pot. I'm just going to do LSD and drink, drink beer. Right? And a little bit of angel dust every once in a while. Except with that stuff, every time I did it, I, I hated it. <laughs> every time I did it. <laughs> um, but eventually, I made a decision that this was not good. I just would stop it. Uh, you know, I, I stopped the, the hallucinogenics. I stopped the pills. I stopped... Uh, cocaine was okay. <laughs> but, but the beer... It was actually, you know, I, I didn't like having to drink so much beer to get me where I wanted to go. And I found that if you, if you mix a little tequila in with the beer, you have to drink less beer. And, it, it, and I later found out that there's a drink actually called Slammers. I don't know if you've ever had one of those with beer and, and tequila, and you slam it on the bar, and it, you drink it when it foams up. <laughs> so uh, eventually there was less and less beer and more and more hard liquor, because... Hard liquor just got me to where I wanted to be, right? And uh, and alcohol was always dependable. It was always dependable. You know, if you were going to go on a date and you wanted to be romantic, rum was a great choice. You know, if uh, if you if you were in a self-centered, feel sorry mode, vodka was what did it for me. It kept me right where it took me right down into that pit. And then uh, if you're going to go to a party and you, and you plan to be getting rowdy or fighting or something, tequila, that was the only choice. Tequila got me, uh, got me aggressive. But if it was just hanging out with the guys, uh, it just seemed like Jack Daniels was the only choice, right? Just hanging out, 
just doing guy things. You know, and, and, and Jack Daniels. I probably developed a closer relationship with Jack Daniels than any other person in my life. <laughs> and that thing, it, it lasted longer than any other person in my life. You know, and again, I was living the way I wanted to live, drinking the way I wanted to drink. Right? I didn't, I wouldn't have, uh, if you would have proposed the word powerless over alcohol to me, uh, I couldn't relate to that at the time. And, and I see through my teenage years that there was so many, so much drugs and so much alcohol. <coughs> And I find myself working with a lot of young people these days, and, and they're coming in in their teenage years, right? And uh, you know, never really getting to the point that the big book talks about, right? Uh, going a number of years trying to control their drinking and failings. Something just stops them, and court or family or situations, right? Um, you know, I, I wish something would have stopped me then because, if, you know, if, in hindsight, I see that my life would have been much different. But I, I seem to have set my life up in such a way that, that uh, nothing could stop me. Um, my parents were, were certainly not happy the way I was living. And uh, I, was, I was convinced that that was their problem because I'm not hurting anyone. Right, not seeing the selfishness of that, of what they had to, what they had to, how that must have been for them to, to watch how I was living my life. You know, I, I can never really get the vision out of my head of the time that my mother came up and while I was telling her that marijuana makes me more creative and able to, because I did a lot of art, artsy things, and seeing that a tear coming down her eyes while I was telling her that, and, and it didn't even register to me that, uh, you know, how much pain she must have been in by seeing the way I was living. Um, you know, so other people around me saw the, the impact that the, what I, and the direction that my life was going. And as far as I was concerned, you know, life is great, right? This is exactly the way I want to live forever. You felt that way? And that uh, that went on for a lot of years, and uh, I. Uh, but what it, what had happened is, is, is slowly but surely, all the drugs just dropped out of the picture, except for cocaine, alcohol, and cocaine, <coughs> stayed in my in my uh, in my life for a long time. Around uh, about at, at, when I was about twenty five, I started shooting cocaine. You know, so between the, the cocaine and, and the Jack Daniels and tequila, you know, uh, I, uh, I was just living life exactly how I wanted to live it. And I couldn't see how it was affecting me negatively because when I was in it, see, I've always had the ability to start businesses, right? Looking back, I realized if that wasn't the case, I would have been, I probably would have seen some other things sooner because I, I realize now, looking back, that I was somewhat unhirable. Right? That the way that I was running my businesses, 
the businesses failed, but I never got fired, right? I just would lose the whole business, and I'd start another one. You know, and certainly there was all the, you know, if, if, the, if the employees would have just done what they were supposed to do, if those clients would have just only bought from me and not the competition as well, right? There was always the excuse out here of, of, why, of what was affecting my life negatively. It was never, the idea that it was the, the way I was drinking and, and using um, never really, you know, came into the picture, uh, into my mind. So, you know, I was drinking tequila one night and uh, was at this uh, singles dance and I met my first wife. Uh, she was dancing with somebody else, but I was drinking tequila. <laughs> and that's just why I like tequila. <laughs> you know, it's just why I like tequila. Um, at least that night, I mean... But, uh, you know, the, uh, as the drinking progressed and uh, it, it became more and more, it became harder to keep things together around me. About uh, 19... By 1985, I had gotten married, and then my mother passed away, and then, uh, and then 11 months later, my father passed away. Two completely unrelated situations. And uh, just, it kind of threw me into a tailspin, because I was very close with my parents. And, uh, but there was even less around me to... to less around that would influence anything, you know, that would affect the way I was living, right? Because my wife wouldn't have said anything, and, and, and I didn't have the parents to hide it from. And, and I, just, I just started circling the drain a lot faster, right? Drinking got heavier. Um, I was losing another business. The, um, the wife that, uh, you know, after about, after just about six months or so. You know, she was so nice when I met her. I don't know what happened to her. <laughs> it's got so difficult. The, uh, I just remembered, I can't chew ice when I got a microphone on my lapel. <laughs> the, uh, you know, and, and I, I don't, looking back, in inventory, I saw I can't even blame her for the way she was feeling. You know, I, I, I had this little business um, about t half an hour from where we lived. It was a picture frame company. And I had employees that were working for me. And, and uh, I had a, a neighbor with a sign painting company next to me. And uh, lunchtime, he would come over and say, hey, it's time for lunch. And I'd say, okay, and I'd make a list of everything I wanted my employees to do and, and say, see ya. And they knew the drill because it was, a, it was just a daily occurrence. Lunchtime meant I was going to the bar. We were going to go start drinking. And uh, 
at times I wouldn't come back the rest of the day. Right? And then time after time I'd call my wife and tell her, you know, it's uh, i got so much work here, I'm, I'm behind, I can't come home right away, I'm probably going to sleep in the office. Right? And it was such a regular occurrence, she didn't even fight it anymore. And, uh, you know, uh, at least not not outwardly. Right? I'm sure she was very disappointed and, and well, I know she was very disappointed, but she didn't, she, she didn't feel that she had the right to tell me that I shouldn't get my work done, right? It set up my life in such a way that it's just, you know, nobody was going to get in my way of living the way I wanted to live, right? And, and, uh, even though things weren't going well around me, um, I couldn't, I didn't know another way to live. I just didn't know another way to live. And alcohol had been such a big part of my life for so long. I couldn't see life without it. Right? But I, I was hopeful because I, I was sure that something was going to turn around, that I was going to get my big break. And, you know, and, and it, it actually never happened. Not, not before I lost another business. And, uh, I closed that business down and I and I moved it all into a garage and I started to keep try to keep the customers a different way and it, it just wasn't happening and as I said my 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 uh, parents passed away and there was a uh, and things had gotten so bad with work that uh, see we the family owned a little apartment building just a small one it was ten units and. Uh, and when my parents passed away, I was left to manage it. So now I'm drinking, still doing some drugs, uh, cocaine, and I, and, but mainly drinking. Right, work is trashed. The re- relationship is, is is going down the toilet fast. Right, and I've got a regenerating bank account that I'm in control of. Every it regenerates every month with rent coming in. Right? So nobody knew that I was unable to pay rent. Nobody knew that I couldn't afford food. Nobody knew that I wasn't, that the only way that I could, I could get my booze was to use the money from, from this apartment building. Although I wasn't stealing, I just decided that my job was so important that I deserve a paycheck. On top of the rent money, on top of everything else. Right? Right? Stealing? No. <laughs> I didn't realize that till later. So, uh, you know, you looking from the outside in, you wouldn't think that things could get worse. And on the outside, I don't think things really got too much worse. But what had happened is over the next few years, it got worse inside. Because alcohol stopped touching that part of me that it used to touch. Right? I was still getting drunk, but but there was it's there was obviously something wrong and i looked around my life to see what it was what was left because i the business was gone the customers were gone everything was gone but she was still there so i got the bright idea that if i threw her out that things would be better because her nagging her 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 stresses her her problems they're her problems and i and just so i threw her out 
But that didn't fix anything. Because that only left me sitting on my couch, looking around my life, thinking, what happened? Right? And I thought so well of myself, my ability to start businesses and, and, uh, and get the, th- I thought I could easily get what I, I, I was sure that I was going to retire at 30. Right? Um, at least that's what I thought when I was younger. And 30 came and went, and, you know, you know, I just, sitting there, I just remember this, this specifically. I'm sitting on my couch, looking around my life, thinking, what happened? What happened? Right. I, uh, I had stopped doing the drugs. I th- pushed out everything that was important around me. I had nothing left to blame on the way that I was living. And, it, and I woke up. I woke up. And I had to stop drinking. I started to see the impact that it was having on my life. Right? And that's where the fun started. Right? <laughs> I say that jokingly because the next part, uh, you know, I, if, in a meeting, if the topic of the meeting is spiritual awakening, a lot of people will talk about nice, feel-good, fluffy experiences like a spiritual awakening is supposed to feel good. And I'm sure I've had those, but those aren't the ones I remember. The spiritual awakenings that I remember are the ones that are so painful and impact my life so greatly that there's a shift inside. And those, for me, usually are the spiritual awakenings of the painful variety. Right? Because what, what came at that after that decision that I had to stop drinking was the realization that I couldn't. Right? I found myself waking up in the morning before I'd even closed my eyes, after the night before telling myself, I'm not going to drink tomorrow. And before I'd even opened my eyes, I'd ask, the thought would come to my mind is, when am I going to get up out of bed and walk to the liquor store? Right? And I'd make this regular trip to this liquor store, which luckily was just across the street. And, uh, and I'd take this long, not distance-wise, but... It seemed like it took forever, this long walk to the liquor store, talking to myself out loud. What's wrong with you? Why do you keep doing this? You told yourself you're not going to drink. Now, keep in mind, it meant something different back then. Today, if someone's walking down the street screaming at something out loud, you just assume they're on their Bluetooth, right? And, you know... In the, in the late 80s, there was no Bluetooth. It meant that someone was crazy. Right? Right? But I don't mean the kind of crazy that you hear people describe in meetings. Right? What's the description you hear in meetings about insanity? Doing the same thing over and over again, expecting different results? I had done that for years. As long as I had hope, I was expecting different results. Right? I had got to the point in my in my life, where I was no longer living the way I wanted to live, no longer drinking the way I wanted to drink, making decisions that I wasn't going to drink and continued to fail, and I had done that so many times, failing to not drink, right, that, I, that I had lost all hope. Right? And I was doing the same thing over and over again, not expecting any different results, just expecting to just die this way, and that things were just going to keep on getting worse and worse 
You know, and, and they pretty much did for me. Not necessarily outside, because I pretty much lost everything. If I wasn't in the situation I was in, I would have probably been homeless. But there was nobody there to see what I was doing. Nobody, over, nobody checked me, because I was doing all the paperwork for this place. So I, the fact that I wasn't paying for, work, for the apartment that I was living in didn't matter. So uh, what had happened, though, is I, I had some arguments with some family members. And they were pretty bad arguments. And uh, <coughs> it just threw me into a much deeper place, a much deeper low than what I had been. And uh, I just thought to myself, that's enough. I can't do this anymore. Because right? alcohol took me to the place that, that I didn't want to live in. And I had been in that place, I had, I had been in that place for two years, right, trying to stop drinking and continuing to fail. You know, and, and I had gotten to such a low, depressed place that I decided that it, it would be that the only solution that I would, could possibly have was, was to blow my brains out. I'd been going to some therapy and seeing a therapist, and at $70 an hour, um, he'd, he'd tell me all kinds of things that he thought would be helpful, and I, on the way home, I'd pick up a bottle of Jack Daniels and consider it. Right? Don't get me wrong. I know that therapists get a bad rap in the program. Um, I think, though, that that a therapist that had some Experience with alcoholism would have been more helpful for me than someone that didn't, right? Because you know, I'm sure there's plenty of therapists that are trained in how to and what we need. And uh, you know, but this one obviously wasn't. So anyway, I I just um, I was in such a low place. I, I one day I just picked up this 357 Magnum, thinking this is going to be my solution. And I was holding the gun in my in my hand and, and trying to decide, you know, you do it from the front, from the back, you know. I, I didn't know. And, and the um, it occurred to me that the gun that I was holding belonged to my brother. Now, my brother was already on the run from unloading a shotgun on his best friend. <laughs> and I, I really probably care more for my brother than anybody else, anybody or anything in the world. And uh, for a split second, I thought about it, and I thought, this is not the right gun to use to blow my brains out with, right? Because I didn't want him to think that he did it. And I just, you know, I didn't believe in God at that point because the condition of my life was had gotten so low, so bad, that there couldn't have been anything that cared about me especially a God. But I looked up and probably did the most sincere prayer that I'd ever done in my life. I just looked up and I just said, help. Just said, help. You know, and um, went to sleep. And the next couple of days, I was walking down the street and I bumped into a, an old friend from that gas station. Didn't even recognize him. His whole face had changed. It turns out he'd, he'd gotten sober. And, uh, you know, I, I was 
talking to other friends. I was talking to family members. I was talking to this therapist, never really wanting to say too much because you don't want them to get in the way of your drinking, right? <laughs> but this guy, Brian, you know, I drank with Brian. I know Brian was much worse than I was, I always thought. <laughs> So it was, it was kind of strange to see him in this condition because he was, you know, he, he's, his eyes were bright, his, he was attentive, he was, he was sober, right? But the thing was that I was trying to say is that I felt that I could talk to this person without holding anything back, right? Because he was like me. And that's one of the, one of the greatest gifts that we have here is, 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 is our experience with the way we were, with our experience drinking, right? And, uh, and, you know, he must have read that chapter working with others because he, he had, he said just the right things. And you know, he, uh, you know, he didn't say anything that chased me away. He didn't, you know, he didn't start talking about God. He didn't start, uh, he just let me know that, that he had gotten sober. And if I wanted some help, he was there for me. And then he started to talk about these meetings he goes to, and I thought, oh, no, I'm not going to any meetings. I'm not that bad yet. <laughs> but I, it didn't take me long before I called him, and he says, okay, tell me more about those meetings. And, uh, and he took me to this, my first meeting, and... Uh, I hit Alcoholics Anonymous like a bug hitting a windshield. I just stuck right from the beginning, right? And uh, and I, I got uh, I got really into the program because uh, you know I was so hopeless that the devastation of what, where my life had gotten, and I, and and now going to these meetings and seeing other people where where who talk about how their lives has changed just got got me into a place of such hope that I, I, I really wanted something. I really wanted more. And, and But I was hearing so much conflicting information and, and you guys were talking about God and the back of my hair would raise. Right? It's like, God, you know, there's got to be something else working here, not that. So I figured the people that were talking about God were delusional and I set out to find out what's really working for you. Right. And in my quest, I went through five sponsors in my first year. <laughs> You've heard it. Not enough time for me. Um, this, he's got too many other things going on in his, in his life. I'm not important. Right? There's a whole, a whole list that I hear from other people these days. You know. And uh, but I ended up. You know, one of the things that made it difficult is you guys said, find someone that has what you want. Look around the room, that's tough. <laughs> um, so the, I would, uh, anyway, I ended up back with Brian. Brian became one of my, the first sponsors to take me through the steps. The other ones started, I had probably done one, two, and three probably with each one of them, but Brian got me all the way to uh, step 10 and 11. Um, now Brian I didn't pick initially because he was driving the Volkswagen. He was just a handyman, right? So he didn't have what I wanted. He didn't have any girlfriends, you know. He didn't, 
you know. It's, but, but you know what Brian had? Brian had a sense of peace inside of him. Brian enjoyed his life. And it had been a long time since I had a life that I enjoyed. Right? Because I walked in so hopeless and so, so worthless. Right? And I, I didn't know if I'd ever feel any different. Now, I wouldn't say Brian was such a great step worker. And I don't even think he got too far in it himself. In fact, I have a feeling that I passed him up. Which is probably a good thing because, because when it got to step 10 and 11, you know what his instructions were? He says, now go find an 11-step meeting. Right? And I realized what that meant really was Brian didn't know how to take me through 10 and 11. He said, go find, that was his way of saying, go find someone who can. Right? And I walked into a room that became my home group for the next, up until today, it's still my home group. And that was in my first year. So in 1989, I started in this group in Santa Monica. Uh, he told me to find a, um, an 11-step meeting. The name of this meeting, it happened to have been the night that I looked, opened the book up to, the directory up to. And it, the name of the meeting was uh, Steps 10, 11, and 12. I thought, okay, this is what he wants me to find. Right. <laughs> um, it's since changed its name a couple times, and right now it's as outlined in the book, and it's in Santa Monica at 7.30, and it's moved again. It's, it's, it's not in the directory, um, but it's on uh, Lincoln and Washington, north of Wilshire Boulevard, if you're ever in the area. And then not being in the directory is a whole other issue that I go get into now with the amount of time I've got. <laughs> but uh, the um, and there's it was much different than a lot of the other meetings that I was going to at the time. So you couldn't chair in that meeting unless you finished the ninth step, right? Um, if you hadn't finished the ninth step, you could only ask questions. Crosstalk was allowed. And uh, there was nothing in the format, I guess, that said you had to be nice with the crosstalk. Right? <laughs> um, and what I've come to learn is, is it's hard to crosstalk in a really nice way because anytime anybody's crosstalk, they feel challenged. And even if someone approaches it nicely, it's still, it's still take it offensively. But, but that was kind of the arena that I grew up in, in Alcoholics Anonymous, in crosstalk meetings. And I love them now. I love them now because it challenges me, right? Um, you know, because with the, with the questioning and the, and the, and the not, um, and, and the making the, the format of the meeting important, right? Uh, having people stick to the format. Right. It was so much different than the other meetings that I went to that anything goes. And, and, and one of the things that I realized in, with some of those meetings when I go back to some of the first meetings that I used to go to, a lot of those people didn't get any better. And I realized that if I stayed in those meetings that I would never be able to get any better than, than the, how healthy the people were at those meetings. right? Because they weren't doing anything to get themselves into a better place, right? So I'd go to those meetings, that, that I'd revisit those meetings and uh, that seemed more like un, unsupervised group therapy, right? And, 
and uh, I'd repeat what I heard in my meetings, and I was pretty much ostracized because it, in the, in, I found that in those meetings that I used to go to, that if if someone comes in and they're and they're they've had this enormous problem that they've been talking about every week for the last five months, right? Everybody and they're very upset about it, and everybody will clap and say, "Keep coming back," and and, and want to get all lovey with them. And then you want to share something about recovery out of the big book and how well, how much it's changing your life and how well you're getting. Then you hear people grumbling and dropping keys and, you know, and, and it's like, I guess no, I guess it's almost like people don't want to go to hell on their own and it's, it almost lifts them up to see other people are staying sick. <laughs> um, the fact is, is that, uh, is that I became really partial to meetings that were really passionate about doing the work out of Alcoholics Anonymous, doing the 12 steps, not just listening to tapes, not just reading about them, but doing what it says in the big book. And, uh, you know, I found myself having come in at such a worthless, devalued place uh, today, having being in a place where I've touched so many lives, I can't feel that way anymore. I have people that I'm working with currently. I have people that I've worked with in the past that are now working with others, who are working with others, who are working with others, and on and on. Right? Sometimes I go out to, out to coffee with people, and there's four or five generations of sponsorship sitting right at the same table. Right? You know, And it touches me at a deep level to know that that I didn't work with them. I didn't work with all them. Right? I worked with one person who worked with another person who worked with another person. Right? And I, be I believe that, that we have a responsibility as AA members to take responsibility for a spiritual path that's, that's transmittable, that we can pass on to others. Right? Um, you know, I've worked with people that, and in the beginning, we say, you know, that this is about working with others. That I'm going to spend all this time with you, and the only way thing I need that I need from you to repay me is to take this seriously and work with others. All right? And they feel pretty good after they finish the process. They get into 1011, and they're one with God, and then they're doing the long, their hours of meditation, and you know, and, and I and I just tell them, you know. You know <coughs> It's so easy to turn a spiritual path into a selfish way of life, right? But because it becomes about me feeling good, and uh, and and what's it, what's in this thing for me? Why should I do anything to make me uncomfortable, right? Um, but I I can't. All I can do is present the program as a, as it is outlined in the book, and I talk to them about what I do. And I, I try to be an example of that program, right? And, uh, and, I, and, and, I, and I think I come pretty close. I'm, I'm sure I'm not perfect at, at, uh, at it, but, but I also find that it's, it's those imperfections that keep me on the path, right? Um, so I, I think the way I live gives some sort of testament to what's available here and uh, and in order to continue to live that way 
10 and 11 becomes a very, very important part uh, of this way of life, right? And uh, over, the, over the few decades that I've been doing it, that practice has evolved, and uh, I used to always use the big book as a guide for that. Um, and some of what I'm going to say is probably much different than what some people do, but I believe that I can validate it all with the big book. And, uh, and I don't write a 10-step inventory, right? Because I think the key words that it says in the 10-step in the big book is, is we watch for selfishness, dishonesty, resentment, and fear, right? We watch for it. I don't wait for it. So there's something that I do. Right before I even open my mouth, when I'm standing in front of a person that I'm about to, that I'm getting resentful at, or feeling selfish thoughts over, whatever, right? I'm come to a place where I'm watching my behavior. See, that's not something that I was able to do before. You can't do that, right? I couldn't do that without doing a four-step inventory and and reading that to someone else critically and considering what that means in ten and 11, in, uh, 6 and 7. Um, I couldn't do it. I couldn't take my own inventory. Right? But I don't write it in the 10th step. Any spiritual practice that you would, would look at would have some sort of mindfulness part of it. Right? And that's what the 10th step is for me. I'm watching my behavior. And reminding myself, it's not about God yet. I draw a line through 10 and 11. 10 is about watching my behavior, remembering to bring, that I have to bring God into all of my activities. And 11 is doing it. Bringing God is, 11 is about my interactions with God. Right? It's a lot like 6 and 7. Right? 6 for me is not about making a list of my character defects. 6 for me was reviewing the first five proposals seeing all of the, my behavior in my life that I find objectionable, right? The first five steps pretty much lays it out for me. I don't have to necessarily list character defects. Certainly some people like lists, but I just, when I ever made lists in the beginning, I just stuck them in a drawer and forgot about them, right? But I look at the first five steps to show me the defects in my behavior, and now being somewhat awakened to what Dan is running life, running his life on on, on his own power, um, I turn to I turn to God in the seventh step, right? With all of my defects of character from the past, I can't. There's nothing to fix here. Like if I made a list of my character defects of what I've done in the past, right? You're not going to fix the past. Right? The idea here for me is to see what I've done in the past and turn to God from now on so that I don't continue doing those same things. Right? 10 and 11 11 are a lot like that. Right? Except 10, I'm looking at my behavior all through the day. And in 11, it talks about, it talks about a few things. Talks about sinking through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God, right? Prayer, if you look up the word prayer in the dictionary, there'll be pages and pages of definitions. Right? So you have to look at the context it's being used in. Prayer for, in context of, of this 11th step in the big book is asking God. 
And meditation does not mean silence. I tell people that I'm working with, so don't let your silent meditation get in the way of your 11th step. Right? Don't let your yoga practice get in the way of your 11th step. Don't get, let your gym get in the way of your 11th step. Right? Because those aren't our common solution. Our common solution's in the book. And what the book says is, is I constructively review my day. And I ask myself, how well did I 10 step during the day? How well did I watch my behavior and turn to God before I opened my mouth? Right? And if you look through that 11 step consideration for when we retire at night, basically ask you a bunch of questions. How did you behave in your life? But there was a part in that section that always threw me till I thought of it, the 11 step this way. It says, it says, having made our review, we ask God's forgiveness. It's like, why would I ask God's forgiveness? And it came to me. It's because I made a decision in the third step that I was going, that, that I was going to have this way of life with God. And here I'm moving through life ignoring God. Right? So, that's why I'm asking God's forgiveness. Because any relationship, like, say you're, you're, wife or your girlfriend or husband and wife, if you got up in the morning and said, uh, good morning, dear, ignore them all day, and then at night before you go to bed, say, thanks for being in my life, good night. That's, that's, morning, and, that's morning, and evening, morning and nighttime prayer for a lot of people. Hello, good night. What I saw that I need and what the big book talks about is a 16-hour prayer, practicing bringing God into all of my activities. And I couldn't, I couldn't just do that. I mean, I was told to pray right from the beginning when I got to Alcoholics Anonymous, but praying to something you absolutely can't believe in is really difficult. Right? <laughs> so... So it, it, there was that big question about prayer and God for me. And it's like, if God was so great, why doesn't he just prove himself? Right? You know, why doesn't he just prove himself to me? And the other thing I heard, this goes back to the ninth step now. One of the things that I was told early on in my first year was you're never going to finish amends that you can't finish amends. My experience with the ninth step was was that there were some amends that I could make that I absolutely couldn't finish, that that I could finish on my own. But I got down to the last five to these ones that I absolutely couldn't do, the ones that I told myself I was never going to do, the ones that I didn't bring to my sponsor's to show him these because I certainly didn't want him to make me accountable for these ones I didn't plan to do anyway. All right? <laughs> but it was those last five amends because the Dan that got to those last five amends was a different Dan. All right? And those were the ones that had me parked outside in the car waiting to go up with my head on the steering wheel, shaking my head saying, I'm carrying this AA thing way too far. The ones that I absolutely didn't have the power to make. 
right? And those are the ones that the prayer proved itself to me, that God proved itself to me. Those are the ones that I saw that I lacked the power to do, right? But when I got to that point and honestly asked for more strength and went inside for that strength, the strength came and got me out of that car and up to that door. And one of the things was was big in my home group is we talked about uh, uh, the the noise that it makes when the eight step turns into the ninth step. Did you know about that? There's a noise that happens at, when when you're actually through eight and into nine. It sounds like this. And you're knocking at the door of the of the person that you made the set the appointment with. But I found that every single one of those amends, those last five amends got done. Every single one of the ones that I told myself that I could not do got done. And I saw that, that there was a power that would work in my life when I really needed it. And I got the proof that I always needed. And if I would have went along with the, with the idea that people would, were telling me that you can't finish, I would have missed that experience. You know, so I came to the 11th step in a place of, re- of knowing that, that this, this, there's a big deal. This is, this is important. I want this relationship. I want more power. Right? And, and, and I don't, and I see that after all these years of doing it, that I, I could put the ceiling on what Alcoholics Anonymous is and what the 12 steps are, saying this is what AA is, this is what, where the 12 steps will take me, and it won't take me any farther. Right? And that hasn't been my experience because I've gone through the steps on a regular basis throughout the years. And, uh, and my experience has been different each time. I mean, it, it's, uh, and, 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 uh, cause I build up current, current areas that I'm powerless in, current areas of agnosticism, current resentments, right? And current things that are blocking me from that power, but, but, Staying on this path becomes really important to me, and the way that I do it is, is the way that I maintain what I have is through 10 and 11, right? Watching, and in 11, watching my day for where I slip up. Now, it doesn't only, it doesn't only talk about maintaining the 10 and 11 in the 10th step, right? It talks about the maintenance and growth of a spiritual experience in my big book, right? Now, maintenance is one thing, but growth is another, right? And where I see that I grow in 10 and 11 is when I'm reviewing how well did I live in the 10th step, how well did I watch my behavior, right? And where did I fall short? And where I fall short is where the growth comes, right? Where I fall short is where, is where I see, once again, currently, where self-reliance fails me and, and how, and how and how badly I, I still need God and how I haven't evolved to this place where I'm so sober that I don't need to take this thing serious. You know, the, the next part in the 11th step talks about upon awakening, right? It talks about considering our plans for the day. And I went a long time trying to figure out what they meant by considering my plans for the day. I'd say, okay, I'd wake up at 8 o'clock, I'd have breakfast, take a shower, get to work, and it's like, okay, well, why keep writing this? And it occurred to me that 
it's going to be way more productive if when considering my plans for the day that it had something to do with what came up in the, in the nightly review. Where did I fall short the day before? So when I consider my plans for the day, it's okay. When I'm, when I'm confronted with that person at the meeting, I'm going to pray into it, right? And I'm going to be a lot nicer this time. <laughs> or, or I'm going to try to clean up what had happened some, somehow, right? So I set an intent for the day in the morning, right? And, uh, you know, and, and that's how I, that's how I grow. It's by seeing where I fall short, how today living without power continues to give me the same results, and I consciously pray and into the situations to try to live differently, right? Based on current areas of agnosticism, current areas of self-propulsion. So, I think the whole thing is, is all about the 11-step pause. I think that's the, like, the most important part of this whole thing, where it says, as we go through the day, we pause when agitated or doubtful, that paragraph. I made this decision in the third step, right? And the decision talks about the director and actor and principal and agent, the father and child, in the third step decision on page 62. And the third step for me was easy. It's it's looking at those relationships, those three aspects of one relationship. And, and I, I turn those into questions, and I ask myself, how good a job have I done directing my life up to this point? Right? Not a good one. Right? Obviously, I'm here. <laughs> right? So the decision was God would direct my life, and, and I would just be an actor in God's play. And then there's the principal and agent, and the agent has a fiduciary responsibility to be who the principal would have him be. So I asked myself the question, how good a job have I done making you be who I would have you be? How good a job have I done making me be who I would have me be? Not a very good job. All right. So in that decision is hereafter in this drama of life, I will be who God would have me be. Right, and the third one is the father and child relationship. The father's typically a provider. How good a job have I done providing the power that I need to live my life on my own? Right? Not good enough. Right? So in that decision, in the third step, it's, it's that hereafter in this drama of life, God will provide the power that I need in my life. God will prov- I will trust that God will provide what I need. Now, why am I saying that now in the 10 and 11? It's because... In the 11th step paragraph, that I think what the book in the, at the third step calls this the concept of, of a new way of life, this is the concept of that new way of life for me today. As I go through the day, I pause when agitated or doubtful, and I ask for the right thought or action, because I trust that God, my Father, will provide what I need. Saying to myself many times through the day, I'm no longer running the show. God's directing my life. Right? Saying to myself... I forgot the, the, the wording just left my head, but it says, Thy will be done. What would God have me be to you? What would God have me be? So the 11-step pause is, is living the decision in the third step. In the third step, it was just a decision. In the 11th step, it becomes a way of life.
right? And in that, and it's that way of life that I present to the, to the people that I work with, right? It's in that way of life that people see an example of what the process can can give to them, can bring to them, right? And uh, if you want to learn something well, teach it. If you want to learn something well, you teach it, right? And uh, and that that's. I would say that that has taken me so much farther than, than initially what, where I was. Another part in the book talks about we grow in understanding through work and self-sacrifice for others. Right? We grow spiritually through work and self-sacrifice for others. Not from sitting in long times of meditation, not from sitting cross legs with my fingers up in the air. It's through work and self-sacrifice with others. And I find that nothing touches me spiritually more than that job. And I call it a job because it takes up a lot of my time. And I wouldn't replace my, my current life for any other life that I've ever had or any other life that I've seen. I love my life today, and that wasn't the way I came in. My life is, is surrounded by people that care about me, that are grateful for me, to me. Um, and I, and I, I really feel like I get way too much credit for just passing on the life that Alcoholics Anonymous has given me. Right? There's just so much more here than what I ever imagined. If you would have asked me in the beginning, what do you want out of this thing? I would have said, I just want my life back. You know, and thank God I didn't get my life back. <laughs> right? Right? I, I got so much more. So much more. And, uh, you know, and to watch the people that I work with being in the same place. Um, I don't call them pigeons. I don't call them, I don't, I call them friends, right? I know there's a lot of cute words for people's sponsees. I call them friends because what I think is my job is to bring them up as peers, right? Not people that are going to be like underneath me. I'm, not this pyramid where I'm at the top. If anything, I feel like I'm at the bottom of the pyramid, an upside-down pyramid. And my job is just to support others that support others. And, the, and, and having the presenting um, 10 and 11 in a manner that's uh, like that, where it's about them taking responsibility for their own spiritual path. Uh, you know, sponsorship is easy because when they call me, when people that, it's easy to sponsor a lot of people when a lot of them are, are doing fine, right? Um, the questions I get, it's only when someone's hung up on, when they can't get over a resentment, right? But if they, if they, what a lot of people call a 10 step, uh, I would, I prefer to call it an 11 step, but it's just semantics. But when people call me and they want to read it, uh, an inventory to me, um, uh, or if they have an issue, I should say, they have to have written an inventory, right? Because if they call me without writing an inventory, um, it's like there's nothing to talk about until you get clear on it, right? It says we can, it says in the tense that we can, it does say we continue to take personal inventory. It doesn't say we continue to whine to our sponsors about those people in the meeting, right? See, that's, that's why I need 10 and 11 right now so much is because you people, because <laughs> you people are what's the bulk of my life right now, right? You know, but when I talk to them...